0: Twinkle, Let the star, how I wonder what you are. Hi everyone and welcome back to my podcast, Little Sapiens. My name is Dr. Max Cohen and I'm a pediatric resident from New York. Today we're going to be going through a pediatrics and review article that was just recently published in April of 2022 titled Autoimmune Encephalitis. So as usual, we'll start off with a brief overview of our topic. Again, today we're talking about autoimmune encephalitis and autoimmune encephalitis is a common and treatable cause of encephalitis in both children and adults. Individuals present with a variety of symptoms, which can include altered mental status, behavioral changes, irritability, insomnia, developmental regression, seizures, dyskinetic movements, and autonomic instability. Typically, we evaluate children who we suspect autoimmune encephalitis in with electroencephalography, aka EEG, magnetic resonance imaging, aka MRI, and lumbar puncture. And once infectious and all other causes are reasonably ruled out, treatment for autoimmune encephalitis should be started empirically without waiting for antibody confirmation. This is important because early clinical suspicion is key. And the reason is the outcome depends on early initiation of immunotherapy, which can include steroids, IVIG, and or plasmapheresis. There's also severe or refractory cases of autoimmune encephalitis, which may require other treatments such as rituximab, cyclophosphamide, or other immunotherapies uh, such as novel monoclonal antibodies, which are still being studied. Psychiatry should be involved early, because of the need for management of behavioral issues. And then additional considerations include management of seizures and dyskinesias. Sometimes patients may need ICU admission, and that could be for management of hypoventilation, which may necessitate mechanical ventilation, either intrinsic or iatrogenic, um, which can also be caused by sedatives. They may need the ICU due to refractory seizures and dysautonomia. Anti-N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor, aka anti-NMDA receptor, and other forms of autoimmune encephalitis are less often associated with neoplasia, such as ovarian teratoma in children compared with adults, but screening and removal of tumor, if present, should be performed. All right, let's jump right into this with some background information. Autoimmune encephalitis, what does it refer to? It refers to a group of non-infectious, immune-mediated inflammatory disorders of the brain that cause a variety of neurologic and psychiatric symptoms. It's a common, treatable cause of encephalitis and one that has been increasingly recognized during the past decade. There have been epidemiologic studies that suggest that autoimmune encephalitis is as common as infectious encephalitis. Now, anti-NMDA receptor antibody induced encephalitis is the most common antibody-mediated encephalitis in children. And some say that it is more prevalent than any individual viral encephalitis, such as enterovirus, herpes simplex virus, West Nile virus, or varicella zoster virus encephalitis. All right, so let's give a brief history of autoimmune encephalitis. The truth is recognition of autoimmune encephalitis dates back to the mid to late 20th century. In 1968, a paraneoplastic syndrome, which was characterized by memory loss, neuropsychiatric symptoms, and seizures, was reported in several patients in the setting of occult malignancies, such as small cell lung cancer or breast cancer. And due to the postmortem pathologic pattern of inflammatory changes in the limbic areas of the brain, this was termed limbic encephalitis. And even today, people use the term limbic encephalitis interchangeably with autoimmune encephalitis, but that's mainly for historical purposes. Today, we identify this disorder as autoimmune encephalitis. Then in 2005, a case of a woman with an ovarian tumor, ovarian teratoma to be specific, had clinical features that was similar to limbic encephalitis with autoantibodies that were reactive to specific antigens in the rat hippocampus. And they later found that the main autoantigens were the functional parts of the NMDA receptor. This description, along with 12 additional women with ovarian teratomas, all with anti-NMDA receptor antibodies in their sera, introduced anti-NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis As a distinct disease entity in 2007, therefore, or thereby revolutionizing our understanding of paraneoplastic disorders and autoimmune encephalitis. So, what's the etiology? Well, the exact pathophysiologic mechanisms that initiate the inflammatory cascade leading to autoimmune encephalitis are not fully understood. What we do know is that more than half of the children presenting with autoimmune encephalitis have a history of infectious prodromal symptoms. Now, interestingly, autoimmune encephalitis has been reported in up to 27%. That's more than a quarter of patients with a history of HSV encephalitis within three months after completing their antiviral treatment. And furthermore, If we look at patients with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis that don't have a history of HSV-1 encephalitis, they were still more commonly seropositive for HSV-1 immunoglobulin G compared with controls without autoimmune encephalitis. And so basically what we're seeing here is this strong connection between autoimmune encephalitis and viral prodromes. Now, recently, anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis has been reported additionally after severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 infection. So that is very current with what we're dealing with now, SARS-CoV-2. There has been some reports uh, of this anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis occurring after an infection with COVID. Two hypotheses have been made to explain the link between autoimmune encephalitis and infections. The first is molecular mimicry, which we've learned about in many other autoimmune conditions. And the idea of this is that some epitopes, which are expressed by viruses, particularly HSV-1, have structural similarities with neuronal antigens and therefore trigger an autoimmune response. You have antibodies that are made against viral epitopes. And once that happens, those antibodies may also fight some neuronal antigens which have structural similarities. The alternative hypothesis is that once the virus takes over and causes infection, the damage that is done by the immune system to destroy that virus also causes some destruction of neurons due to um, viral processes themselves It can also be due to tumors, or it could be due to unknown mechanisms. And that may result in activation of the immune system against autoantigens. So now that we understand a little bit about the etiology, how does that help us understand the etiology or the causes for the clinical symptoms that we see in autoimmune encephalitis? Now, to understand that, you really just need to understand what exactly we're doing here. So if we're talking about an antibody that it goes against NMDA receptors, then you just have to know what the NMDA receptors do or what the cascade of events after the NMDA receptor is triggered um, is, and then we can understand how this is all affected in autoimmune encephalitis. So NMDA receptors mediate the excitatory effects of glutamate which is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the CNS. Now, decreased receptor density in the hippocampi and the limbic system is associated with memory deficits and behavioral issues. The decrease at the level of inhibitory interneurons can contribute to a hyperexcitable state, which could lead to dyskinetic movements or seizures if the decrease occurs in the basal ganglia or cortex. The most common antibodies that contribute to autoimmune encephalitis in children are the anti-NMDA receptor antibodies, myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, and glutamic acid decarboxylase 65, also known as GAD 65 antibodies. All right, moving on to talk about the presentation of autoimmune encephalitis. This could be really, really difficult, especially early in the disease course. And it could be extremely and incredibly challenging even for seasoned clinicians. The reason for it is because AE, autoimmune encephalitis, causes multifocal brain inflammation. It can cause polysyndromic and heterogeneous presentations. And there are many symptoms of autoimmune encephalitis that are non specific, and they're present in many other conditions. And so it becomes a challenge to even the seasoned clinician to recognize when this presentation may be autoimmune encephalitis or some other diagnosis. So a few more important points regarding making the diagnosis and also not falling into a trap of Um, not knowing whether this is autoimmune encephalitis or something else that may be more common. So autoimmune encephalitis can present with or without a preceding viral illness, and that's important to keep in mind. It is an acute or subacute immune process, and the course is usually marked by rapid progression, that is days to weeks with symptom duration of less than three months at the time of presentation. There can be a more chronic or indolent presentation, which may be months to years of progression. And those, those presentations should raise suspicion for other etiologies. The course for autoimmune encephalitis is usually progressive in the absence of treatment, meaning if we don't start treatment, it usually progresses. And this is different than relapsing, remitting courses that we see in some patients with multiple sclerosis and other systemic inflammatory disorders. And so that is also a point of differentiation between autoimmune encephalitis and other etiologies. So now let's focus on individual symptoms that we find with autoimmune encephalitis, starting with neuropsychiatric symptoms. Now, the presentations, the neuropsychiatric presentations among individuals with autoimmune encephalitis can be highly variable. And there are different phenotypes that have been observed, including behavioral, mood, or personality change. You may see irritability, hyperactivity. There could be fulminant psychosis that goes on as well. We see patients with cognitive and memory impairment, confusion, language and developmental regression, stereotyped or repetitive behaviors, and sleep disturbances, which are sometimes common signs and symptoms that are localized to the temporal and limbic structures of the brain. Sleep disorders in anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis usually follows a temporal pattern. Patients typically have insomnia at the onset, but then later on have hypersomnia during recovery. Interestingly, there are autoantibody-specific presentations that may come up. So, for example, there can be uh, a frequently associated uh, symptom of confusion and recall issues that we find with the involvement of the medial temporal lobe with GAD65, leucine-rich glioma-inactivated 1, and NMDA receptor antibodies. And though it's rare in patients with autoantibodies against metabotropic glutamate receptor 5, They may have a combination of confusion and memory impairment, but also associated depersonalization, which is known as Ophelia syndrome. And Ophelia syndrome, this depersonalization, is commonly associated with Hodgkin's lymphoma and may present in adolescence. Other things to look out for, especially in the early stages of the disease process, include Symptoms associated with declines in school or work performance or strained family relationships. And there usually is a misperception that these symptoms are stress related. But the presence of multiple symptoms or subacute progression of symptoms should really serve as a red flag for underlying neuropathology. There can be acute onset of psychosis, although that is extremely rare in pre-pubertal children, um, but rapid progression of psychosis despite therapy and or presence of other neurological symptoms or signs should really raise suspicion for autoimmune encephalitis. On the same topic of uh, presentation being difficult to make the diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis at times, patients can present with seizures. And we know that seizures are one of the most common presenting symptoms in young children. And so given the gravity of seizure activity, and that in the case of autoimmune encephalitis, this is often the first lifetime seizure for a patient, seizures are much more likely to bring patients to medical attention and therefore may be the only symptom on initial evaluation, which makes things difficult because it being the only initial symptom on evaluation or on presentation may challenge the clinician in their ability to diagnose autoimmune encephalitis because they may say, well, well, this must be the, the first presentation of perhaps a seizure disorder, or this may just be a fluke seizure, and we may just send the patient home and maybe do outpatient EEG, but not necessarily a full workup. So what do seizures look like in the context of autoimmune encephalitis? If we were to slap an EEG on a patient who we suspect has autoimmune encephalitis, they're coming in with a seizure, we might see slowing of background or epileptic activity on the EEG. Status epilepticus is present in 6% of cases and is more frequently encountered in individuals with GAD-65 and gamma-aminobutyric acid type A autoantibodies. Now, similarly, autoantibodies against the gamma-aminobutyric acid type B receptor are also associated with refractory seizures and status epilepticus. However, that's less frequently encountered in children. Now, although very rare... Faciobrachial dystonic seizures, which are characterized by ipsilateral, so single sided face grimacing and arm posturing, are essentially pathognomonic for autoimmune encephalitis associated with autoantibodies against leucine rich glioma inactivated one. So, yes, like we just said, it's very rare, but if you happen to come across that very rare patient who has ipsilateral face grimacing and arm posturing, think. Autoimmune encephalitis. We'll now focus on dyskinetic movements. So patients with autoimmune encephalitis can present with a variety of dyskinetic movements and we'll list them and also describe what some of those are as we move along. But this can include athetosis, which is involuntary writhing. You can have catatonia, chorea, which is brief semi-directed dance link movements that are neither repetitive nor rhythmic. You can have dystonia, involuntary muscle contraction causing distorted posturing and pain. You can have myoclonus, which is brief involuntary twitching and or tremor can be present in individuals with autoimmune encephalitis. In addition, you might find patients with oral lingual and facial dyskinesias. So they may have involuntary contortions and grimacing of the face and mouth. Now that may be confused for something like Tourette syndrome, where in fact, this might be related to autoimmune encephalitis. And we might see that specifically in anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Similarly, with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, you might see a development of a multi-stage disease that progresses from neuropsychiatric symptoms, seizures, language deficits, and dyskinetic movements into a state of unresponsiveness with catatonic features and autonomic instability, as well as hypoventilation, which then, like we had mentioned earlier, could potentially land that patient into an ICU requiring higher level of care. Now, because of the similarities of, uh, of dyskinetic movements and epileptic seizures, it can often be difficult to differentiate them clinically. And confusing the two can cause either treatment of the seizures, where you think that this is mostly dyskinetic movements, or overtreatment of the dyskinetic movements because you think that this is seizure and you end up giving seizure medications. Now, as the disease evolves, the frequency and intensity of the seizures usually decrease but dyskinesias tend to persist, which is a little bit of a hint. And although a high index of suspicion for seizure is still required throughout a patient's clinical course because you don't want to miss the fact that this might be a seizure disorder or that you're not treating a seizure, think about that uh, progression and the, the frequency and intensity of the dyskinetic movements that may remain despite seizures decreasing over time. There is a rare form of autoimmune encephalitis known as progressive encephalomyelitis. And that presents with rigidity and myoclonus. And it's been observed in children as young as one year of age. It's associated with glycine receptor antibodies and strongly associated with spinal and brainstem disorders which can overlap with the muscle rigidity, often mimicking tetanus in severe cases, and myoclonus. And so again, we're going back to the same concept. Autoimmune encephalitis can be very difficult to diagnose. You have to have a high clinical suspicion for it, or at least keep it on your differential as you rule out other illnesses. All right, a word or two about the differences in presentation between children and adults. We've already mentioned that Um, the presentation and symptoms can be different in children um, compared to adults. Now, also, anti-NMD receptor encephalitis is less likely to be a paraneoplastic syndrome or associated with ovarian teratoma in pediatric patients. And we've mentioned before that that was sort of how they've come to discover these um, types of encephalitis um, based on uh, a case series of older woman. However, in pediatric population, it's less common. Now, children with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis are more frequently, or sorry, more frequently present with seizures, dyskinesia, developmental regression, speech deficits, irritability or agitation, and ataxia, while adults are more likely to present with behavioral changes, neuropsychiatric symptoms, and memory or cognitive impairments. Children are less likely to develop severe dysautonomia or hypoventilation compared with adults as well. When psychiatric features are present in children, the children are more likely to be polysymptomatic and include agitation, aggression, hallucination, and emotional lability. They may have memory deficits, especially in younger children, which can be difficult to identify but may be mistaken for encephalopathy. Compared to adults with GAD-65 antibodies, pediatric patients with these antibodies are less likely to show symptoms consistent with stiff person syndrome or cerebellar ataxia as an adult. Instead, pediatric patients with GAD-65 antibodies have a much more classic limbic encephalitis with cognitive changes and seizures. There is another form of autoimmune encephalitis that is somewhat controversial However, the connection is that, that is there is hard to overlook, and that is steroid-responsive encephalopathy associated with autoimmune thyroiditis, and it has an acronym SREAT. It's controversial, um, but it is associated with antibodies against the thyroid, specifically thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin symptoms of the condition include seizure epilepsy neuropsychiatric manifestations such as confusion memory impairment psychosis persecutory delusions and visual or auditory hallucinations and neurocognitive decline often manifested as declines in school performance There can be diffuse hyperreflexia, myoclonus, tremor, and pyramidal tract signs, um, which have been reported. In adults, stroke-like manifestations have also been reported in up to a quarter of individuals. Now, the exact etiology of SREAT is unclear because the disease is not clearly associated with thyroid dysregulation as you would think by the fact that there are those autoantibodies. And the putative autoimmune response in SREAT is speculative because there's no evidence of a CNS target for the antithyroid peroxidase or antithyroglobulin antibodies. However, like I already said, the combination of encephalopathy, a high serum antibody concentration, exquisite responsiveness to corticosteroids in most cases and relapsing course in some individuals seems unlikely to be due to just chance alone. And therefore, we really should interpret SREAT as a possible form of autoimmune encephalitis, although maybe phenotypically different than some of the more definitive autoantibody syndromes that we've already started to talk about. So you have a pediatric patient, and they're coming in with these neuropsychiatric symptoms and movements maybe, and maybe seizure activity, and you're suspecting autoimmune encephalitis, at least you should be suspecting as part of your initial differential diagnosis. What are you doing for that patient? So in all individuals with suspected autoimmune encephalitis, you want both serum and CSF evaluation, you want brain imaging, and you want EEG studies. And the reason is to narrow the differential diagnosis and exclude mimics of the disease. Some studies of the CSF that you wanna look for is an opening pressure, you may wanna look for cell counts with differential uh, CSF protein, CSF glucose, getting a gram stain and culture of the CSF. You may wanna send a meningitis encephalitis PCR panel uh, or or viral PCRs as individual tests for specifically HSV, enterovirus, varicella or West Nile virus, obviously, if it is in the context of the patient's presentation. In addition, with the CSF, you may send an immunoglobulin index, oligoclonal bands, neopterin, as well as a CSF autoimmune encephalitis panel. So looking at antibody detection in the CSF and the serum, you can detect anti-NMDA receptor antibody in both the serum and the CSF using uh, specific techniques. So there's tissue-based assay which uses rat brain immunohistochemistry, and then there's cell-based assay which uses cultures of dissociated rat hippocampal neurons and human embryonic kidney 293 cell-based assays. Now, the N- anti-NMDA receptor antibodies in the Sera or CSF of affected patients react with the NMDA receptors on the surface of the fixed rat brain, cultured hippocampal neurons, or cells that are designed to express the NMDA receptor on their surface. By using complementary methods, meaning we're using cell-based and tissue-based ASI, you can ensure accuracy of your lab results, meaning it helps to uh, prevent false negative results specifically commercial indirect immunofluorescence assays can have false negative results, and therefore negative results should always be confirmed with a tissue-based assay. The problem with these methods is that the results typically take several days to even weeks for for them to come back. Now, it's believed that the anti-NMDA receptor antibody is made intrathecally, meaning within the spine. Now, by definition all patients with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis have a detectable antibody in the CSF. But because we know that the blood-brain barrier exists, the anti-NMDA receptors do not always uh, travel into the serum because the barrier is not always disrupted. And so in 10 to 18% of patients with detectable antibody in the CSF, they do not have a positive serum antibody. And because of the low specificity of serum-only results, especially when performed only by cell-based SI without tissue-based, when there is no CSF positivity, we worry that we may have a false positive result in the serum when not associated with a CSF sample that is positive. Now, besides for Uh, qualitative studies to look for the presence or absence of the antibody. You can also do quantitative studies to look at how many antibodies are present, um, otherwise known as antibody titers. Now, that can complement the clinical assessment, and it may guide the treatment plan in certain situations. Some studies even suggest that patients with high titers of antibody in serum and CSF are more likely to have a worse outcome than those with low titers. However, there's controversy as to whether the decrease of serum antibody levels over time is truly a reliable surrogate marker of neurological improvement, um, and uh, specifically with treatment. You would think that the higher the levels, if it's determining a worse outcome, that the decrease in the levels over time would be a sign of improvement, but there's some controversy about that. It doesn't seem like it holds as much truth as we'd like it to. We see this specifically in the subgroup of patients, in some children with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, where antibodies could continue to be present in their CSF, often with stable low titers, but they're still present at follow-up even 12 months after the initial presentation, even after achieving recovery with therapy. Conversely, some patients with a clinical picture of autoimmune encephalitis have no known detectable antibodies in the CSF or the serum. Now, these patients with antibody-negative autoimmune encephalitis, they share similar characteristics with those who have specific antibodies detected, including the presence of some non-specific CSF markers of neuroinflammation. A positive response in antibody-negative autoimmune encephalitis to a trial of immunotherapy would provide more support for this diagnosis. It's speculated that these patients do still have autoantibodies, but they've not yet been discovered. Moving on from the CSF to MRI. Neuroimaging in cases of possible autoimmune encephalitis should be performed on a 3T magnet with and without contrast. And the reason is to improve visualization of signal abnormalities in the temporal lobe structures and evaluate for leptomeningeal enhancement, respectively. MRI results can be normal in half to two-thirds of the patients, particularly when performed early in the clinical course. So don't be surprised, you suspect autoimmune encephalitis, you get an MRI in half To two-thirds of the patients, it can be normal, especially if this is earlier on. However, MRI is recommended in patients with suspected autoimmune encephalitis still as part of the initial evaluation and to investigate for other possible etiologies, right? So this MRI is not just to look for autoimmune encephalitis, it's also there to rule out other possible etiologies, Brain MRI abnormalities that are seen in autoimmune encephalitis are commonly subtle, and they may be discordant from the often dramatic clinical features that the patient presents with. You can have findings of T2-weighted fluid attenuated inversion recovery abnormalities, fancy terms, I'm not a radiologist, Um, But these findings can be seen throughout the brain and in cortical and subcortical areas, including temporal, frontal, and parietal lobes, hippocampi, and amygdalae, cerebellum, thalamus, and basal ganglia. Contrast enhancement and abnormal diffusion-weighted images can also be seen. Basically that was a fancy way of saying there are multiple things that you can find. It might be um, fluid attenuated inversion stuff. You might have contrast enhancement or non-enhancement, but basically you may see abnormalities throughout the brain in autoimmune encephalitis. Besides for MRI, we can also do what's called an FDG PET CT scan. Um, So that's F-fluorodeoxyglucose positron emission tomography, um, computed tomography. And so similar to when a patient comes in with either an acute bleed or an acute stroke, we tend to get a CAT scan because it's usually positive in the early clinical course, whereas MRI, you may not find any findings of the specific illness or disease process you're looking for. Similar to that, the FDG PET CT scan can be used in the more acute setting because you might find more abnormalities in this uh, modality of imaging compared to MRI. And specifically, you might see areas of hypometabolism or hypermetabolism in the brain. Now, the caveat is um, the use of this test in neuroimaging is that seizures can cause changes in metabolism, leading to false positives. You can get seizure foci, which usually show increased metabolism during a seizure and decreased metabolism between seizures in the interiptal periods. And this is specifically relevant because children are more likely to have seizures as part of their clinical presentation. And so, it can be difficult to use this and say without a shadow of a doubt that this is autoimmune encephalitis and not necessarily a seizure disorder or just a seizure on its own. When it comes to the use of electroencephalography, the EEG, it's also primarily used for detection of seizure activity. Although it can be used as an adjunct test for cerebral dysfunction in individuals with autoimmune encephalitis. And it is a non-invasive, although it's non-specific, but it can have a clinical biomarker of disease activity. So again, EEG mainly to look for seizures, but there can be findings associated with autoimmune encephalitis. What are they? So EEG findings are abnormal in more than 90% of patients and most often reveal focal or generalized diffuse slowing of the background. Focal or generalized seizures or epileptiform discharges can also be present, and in children, the discharges could be more generalized compared to localized temporal lobe discharges in adults. Extreme delta brush is a characteristic EEG pattern that is seen in some patients with NMDA receptor encephalitis. So say you make the diagnosis of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis what kind of further imaging or testing might you need? Well, we've mentioned before the association between NMDA receptor encephalitis uh, or NMDA receptor antibodies with specific tumors like ovarian teratomas, but can also be um, present with other neoplasias as a paraneoplastic syndrome. And so if you do make a diagnosis of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis Um, you need to get appropriate imaging like MRI of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis in order to rule out the presence of a teratoma or other neoplasias. Teratomas specifically are thought to contain nervous tissues that express antigens homologous to the NMDA receptor protein and therefore the body creates antibodies against these antigens, which then cross-reacts with our NMDA receptors in the brain. If neoplasia is found, prompt and gross total removal is frequently associated with improvement of symptoms and better prognosis, including decreased relapse rates. To make this even more interesting for female patients that are older than 12 years of age, it's recommended to screen them with an MRI of the abdomen and pelvis every six months for four years. Again, that's different than what we just mentioned above. That was a blanket statement about screening upon diagnosis. But for female patients older than 12 years, they should get screened with MRI of the abdomen and pelvis every six months for four years. Why? Because we are looking for a teratoma, specifically ovarian. And the presence of a teratoma, ovarian in female patients or testicular in male patients or other tumors, although it is rare, only 6%, in children younger than 12 years, we still need to look for it in order to make sure that we are not missing something more significant than just the autoimmune encephalitis that's going on. The presence of a testicular teratoma is rare in general in male patients of any age, but could occur in about 6% of them. Because routine MRI of the core will not identify testicular neoplasia, dedicated testicular ultrasound is often advised versus the MRI. FDG PET scanning alone or combined with CT could also be useful in the detection of small neoplasms if it is something that is suspected more than the rate at which it occurs. Now I know that we've discussed this almost ad nauseum already, but Due to the wide range of presenting symptoms in autoimmune encephalitis, the differential diagnosis is very broad. And although your initial investigations often focus on ruling out primary infectious causes of encephalitis, subsequent diagnostic studies are often focused on ruling out alternative etiologies. So you may have other studies that are used to rule in or out groupings of the differential diagnosis. Imaging, for example, is a great utility for evaluating the presence of alternative demyelinating disorders, vascular disorders, and some genetic or mitochondrial disorders that can have different or unique radiographic signatures on imaging. For example, in primary angiitis of the CNS, it is more likely to show diffusion abnormalities in the distal cortex as opposed to T2 signal prolongation in the temporal lobes. EEG is often used as a biomarker of cortical dysfunction in autoimmune encephalitis, but it can also be used to rule out seizure and epileptic encephalopathy as an etiology for the clinical symptoms. And finally, a lumbar puncture, it's critical in confirming a suspicion for inflammatory disease, but it can also rule out toxic, metabolic, infectious, and potentially post-infectious causes of symptoms associated with autoimmune encephalitis. Now, this procedure also provides the definitive diagnosis of autoantibody-mediated autoimmune encephalitis. But of particular importance is that psychiatric and functional neurologic disorders must be considered a a diagnosis of exclusion in cases of possible autoimmune encephalitis given the importance of early treatment on long-term outcomes. What that means is it can be very easy to see a patient who is having psychiatric findings and symptoms and to deem them as having a psychiatric or functional neurologic disorder, meaning removing the thought of this being something organic in nature. And that can be a tr- a huge, huge injustice to the patient because we know that in autoimmune encephalitis, early treatment, has a tremendous effect on long-term outcomes and if you miss it or you disregard it as a potential diagnosis you can be altering the rest of a patient's life forever. So it's weird to think that there's diagnostic criteria for autoimmune encephalitis because we would think that finding the antibodies is the only diagnostic criteria you need. If it's positive, then the patient has autoimmune encephalitis. If it's negative, then they don't. However, we did mention before that one can have antibody-negative autoimmune encephalitis simply because the that antibody that maybe they have has not yet been detected. And although antibody testing is the gold standard and will make that confirmatory diagnosis, it can take weeks to sometimes months for that result to come back. And so because of that, diagnostic criteria have been developed in order to help diagnose autoimmune encephalitis clinically while the testing is in process. And the reason for it is so that you know when to start treatment for suspected autoimmune encephalitis without waiting too long, because like we said before, early treatment has a tremendous importance on long-term outcomes. So the diagnostic criteria for pediatric autoimmune encephalitis is very similar to the guidelines for adult autoimmune encephalitis. And it's really divided, it divides the patients into three diagnostic categories, possible autoimmune encephalitis, probable antibody-negative autoimmune encephalitis, and definite antibody positive autoimmune encephalitis. Based on these criteria, pediatric patients with acute onset of neurologic or psychiatric symptoms with two or more characteristic features would be considered as possible autoimmune encephalitis if other causes have been reasonably excluded. Now, unlike autoimmune diagnostic encephalitis diagnostic criteria for adults, psychiatric symptoms are not a requirement for children because psychiatric symptoms are more difficult to diagnose in younger children, and children could initially present with mainly neurologic signs and symptoms such as seizure and movement disorder without any predominant psychiatric phenotypes. There's a wonderful chart in this pediatrics and review article um, that goes through the different diagnostic categories and the features. And I suggest that you take a look at it. It's difficult to explain in just words. Um, but the, the key point here is that it's the patient presents with neurologic or psychiatric symptoms. Again, you don't need to have psychiatric symptoms like adults need to for their diagnostic criteria, plus two or more features of the disease. And now to treatment. In patients with suspected autoimmune encephalitis, start empirical treatment right away. After reasonable exclusion of other causes, of course, um, but without waiting for specific antibody detection. Preferably, you'll get neuroimaging, and you'll you'll get your CSF samples Um, before initiating therapy, but sometimes in certain clinical circumstances, this may not actually be feasible. Initial empirical treatment for autoimmune encephalitis includes IV corticosteroids, IVIG, or plasmapheresis. So how does treatment work? Acute immunotherapy is usually started with high-dose corticosteroids in the form of methylprednisolone, if no medical contraindications are present. If there's no clinical improvement by the end of the corticosteroid treatment course, then IVIG or plasmapheresis is added. If an infectious etiology has not been excluded, IVIG has an advantage of being unlikely to worsen the infection. And so that's something to keep in mind. Now, in pediatric patients, plasmapheresis is often less favored, especially in milder forms of autoimmune encephalitis because of the invasive line placement that's needed and the greater risk of adverse events such as infection, hypotension, and electrolyte derangements. Now, IVIG might be preferred over plasmapheresis in patients who are agitated or having bleeding disorders just because of the way that plasmapheresis works, and it's important to note that using plasmapheresis shortly after administration of IVIG or rituximab is also not recommended because you might remove the therapeutic agents from the plasma that you just gave to the patient to treat their illness. In some circumstances, you may need a combination therapy of both corticosteroids plus IVIG or plasmapheresis. And that might be considered as first line if the initial presentation is severe and there's a high index of suspicion that's maintained. Now, treatment choice and the order of treatments really vary among different practices. And there's a gap in the evidence to suggest one being more optimal um, treatment strategy or having any superiority over any other specific regimen in pediatric patients. Recently, the international consensus had came, recommendations uh, were published with the aim to provide clinical guidance and standardized treatment for uh, pediatric anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. So what is the response like? Up to 47% of patients do not improve with first-line therapy within the first month of treatment. That's important. Because parental expectations and maybe even patient expectations, if they um, have an understanding of what's going on, is, should be that they may not see improvements. They may not get better in the first month of treatment. Second line treatments include rituximab, cyclophosphamide, and plasmapheresis when not previously used. With mounting evidence of effectiveness of rituximab, it is being increasingly used in combination with IVIG and corticosteroids or after first-line immunotherapies. In addition, several monoclonal antibodies are being investigated and used in the treatment of refractory autoimmune encephalitis. Some examples include anakinra, which is an interleukin-1 inhibitor, tocilizumab, which is an interleukin-6 inhibitor, Ocrelizumab, which is an anti-CD20, Inebilizumab, which is an anti-CD19, and Bortezomib, which is a 26S protease inhibitor. And these are being trialed in patients with severe or medically refractory autoimmune encephalitis. We mentioned several times now that ICU admission may be required in severe cases. Some individuals may present with status epilepticus, refractory seizure activity, dysautonomia, and hypoventilation requiring mechanical ventilation. And that might be due to brainstem involvement or secondary to us giving sedating medications. But nonetheless, they may require ICU level care. We've mentioned that seizure activity usually presents as one of the initial symptoms, especially in children. The other findings um, and the other severe complications really typically develop later on in the disease course. Now, given the variety of symptoms and care needs, a multidisciplinary care team involving pediatricians, neurologists, intensivists, and psychiatrists, as well as ancillary therapy services is paramount in the care of individuals with autoimmune encephalitis there could be a tremendous amount of stress surrounding this diagnosis and the idea of a, of a families of a child of a family having psychiatric symptoms and thinking that this is a psych diagnosis versus it being a complication of an organic diagnosis it could be extremely stressing and For these reasons, we try and get as many physicians on board from different specialties to help explain to the family and manage not just the disease process, but the symptoms surrounding it as well. So we try, we try for early involvement of psychiatric consultants um, because it's important for the management of the neuropsychiatric symptoms throughout the disease course of autoimmune encephalitis. Patients can have agitation, aggression, delirium, sleep issues, including insomnia, and they're commonly seen with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which like we've said is the most common, and other forms of autoimmune encephalitis, and they can often be very challenging to treat. Now there's a gap in the literature in terms of the recommendations of of effective agents and and their dosages as well to treat these conditions. In addition to giving patients melatonin to help with sleep, they might need sedative medications such as benzodiazepines, trazodone, or clonidine, which are often used as adjunctive therapies for both the treatment of sleep and agitation. In some severe cases, patients might need ICU admission for escalated sedation. There are other commonly used agents for the management of mood and behavioral dysregulation, which can include valproic acid as well as some sedating antipsychotics such as quetiapine or chlorpromazine. Valproic acid has the added advantage of seizure prophylaxis and or treatment in addition to having the therapeutic efficacy in a variety of movement disorders. So a little bit of a dual um, purpose there with the valproic acid to help with some seizure stuff as well as movement disorders. The use of conventional antipsychotics and dopamine blocking agents can exacerbate dyskinetic movements such as dystonia, and so you do need to be careful with the medications that you give. And this is sort of what we were explaining earlier on, that you can have overtreatment of one or undertreatment of the other, and it can sort of complicate the diagnosis as well as the management and treatment of the disease. So how do patients with autoimmune encephalitis fare with management? Most individuals with autoimmune encephalitis, the numbers are 72 to 85% have a good outcome. What does good actually mean? So let's talk about this. Prompt initiation of immunotherapy has been shown to be associated with a better outcome. In addition to delayed treatment, other factors that are predictive of worse outcome include ICU admission, decreased level of consciousness, and autonomic dysregulation. Interestingly, status epilepticus is often not associated with a worse prognosis. This sometimes is the the presenting feature of autoimmune encephalitis, and it looks really scary, and we think of status epilepticus as being scary, but interestingly, it is often not associated with a worse prognosis. Now, relapse occurs in about 10 to 25% of patients with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, and usually it's due to suboptimal treatment. So again, you suspect it, you do your diagnostic modalities, you start treatment as early as possible, making sure that you're giving optimal treatment, that they're getting optimal follow-up, they're having the optimal ancillary therapy services that they need. And hopefully you'll prevent your patient from being one of the 10 to 25% that end up with relapse. Most patients do have a prolonged recovery period, often taking several months. A longer course, sometimes more than a year, has also been described in some patients with persistent behavioral issues. Symptoms often improve in the reverse order of presentation, which I think is really cool. Although, given the frequency of polysymptomatic presentations, it could be difficult to definitively track, meaning patients sometimes come in with multiple symptoms at once, and so you don't really know what came first and what came second or third or last. But it's interesting to note that the symptoms usually improve in the reverse order. And so if you do have some idea, it might be helpful to explain to the family, like, hey, you you might see them get better at doing this first. And then you might see improvements in this, and that might help them with just coping with the whole process of um, the recovery period itself. Now, cognitive and behavioral or psychiatric issues, those are often the slowest to improve. And it's unfortunate because those are often the things that are scariest to families. They want to know, is my kid going to be their normal self again? Are they going to think normally again? Are they going to behave appropriately again? They worry about their kid growing up and and molding into an individual and being in society and maybe getting married and having a family. And it's hard to really see all of that early on when the cognitive and behavioral or psychiatric issues are slowest to improve. Additionally, agitation and psychiatric symptoms can resurface as the patients regain their communicative abilities. It's important to let families know about this so that they expect it, so that they know that it's a possibility, so that they know that it may not necessarily be their child getting worse or not responding to the therapy or having a relapse, but it actually may just be part of their recovery process. Despite good overall functional outcome, patients with autoimmune encephalitis are at risk for persistent cognitive deficits as a major long-term morbidity. Pediatric patients with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis have been found to perform lower on neuropsychiatric tests, including sustained attention, processing speed, and verbal memory domains compared with age-matched healthy individuals, even at long-term follow-up with a median of almost three years. These findings underscore the need for early neuropsychological counseling and serial reassessments to update cognitive rehabilitation plans. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we learned about autoimmune encephalitis in pediatric patients and understand the significance of making the diagnosis early starting treatment early and encouraging and guiding the family through their long recovery process ahead as well as making sure they are aware that some symptoms may persist. My name is Dr. Max Cohen and this is my podcast Lil Sapiens. If you enjoyed this episode please follow along and listen to some of my other episodes as well and if you can Share this with your family, friends, colleagues or anyone who you think might benefit from the wonderful world of pediatrics. Up up, up the world so high like a diamond in the sky Twinkle twinkle let the star How I wonder what you are